Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We call ourselves the home of common sense uh, and for good reason, I have to say, there has never been a better time for that quality to come to the fore. This morning, we are greeted with an entire smorgasbord of stories from more U-turns on vaccinations for children, Scotland's intention of making people dance in nightclubs with masks on, Boris Johnson's promise to take a staycation, very wise, and Sir Keir Starmer's bleating on about climate change in The Guardian. Wouldn't you know it? Up first today, we'll be talking to John Redwood, MP for Wokingham and member of the COVID recovery group in Parliament. I'll be asking him about the efficacy of vaccinating children, introducing COVID passports, and just when we can expect all businesses to return to normal. That's right. Freedom with a capital F. That's what I'm looking for. Surely the data is now in place for the government to lead the world on how best to extricate ourselves from this ghastly yoke of safety first and everything else later. 0344 499 Jamie Jenkins, our favourite statistician, is also here with his take on these stories uh, about children suffering the effects of long COVID. He's got some data that suggests that some of those are getting rather highly exaggerated. Also, Laura Dodsworth is here. Uh, she's talking insect eating. She's talking nudge politics and the failing popularity of the Prime Minister. Does he realise it? Does it matter? And will it have any effect on his ability to lead the country? As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you hearing what are you doing and what are you being told yesterday we had some great calls on your experiences with the police and of course still the difficulties of getting treated on the nhs keep those coming in please you can tweet us as well at talk radio and at iromg it's also megan's 40th birthday today happy birthday to me and she's already had best wishes sent from the Queen and William and Kate too. We await pronouncements from the mansion in Montecito in the company of our favourite raw correspondent, Angela Levin. And also, we'll take a trip north of the borders to speak to promoter and nightclub owner Donald McLeod after First Minister Nicola Sturgeon declared that they could open, providing people continue to wear masks and maybe even socially distance themselves. It's also the 25th anniversary of his massive Loch Lomond Oasis gig, and we may share some memories of that. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, available now on TV. It's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And it's time, uh, without further ado, to say a very good morning to Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham, member of the COVID Recovery Group. Sir John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. I had this thought this morning when I was reading through Sir Keir Starmer's nonsense about climate change in The Guardian. He thinks that we should be leading the world on climate change. Why can we not lead the world on getting out of the COVID pandemic and actually show other countries this is how you do it? 
yeah, I want us to lead the world in optimism and economic recovery and recreating our freedoms and getting back to work. Yes. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the prime minister leading the government more in that direction. Uh, I thought the Starmer intervention was very predictable. Do more without specifying exactly how you would do more. I right. mean, has Keir Starmer himself bought an electric car and got rid of the diesels and petrols? <laughs> has he cancelled all his foreign travel? Uh, has he come off meat? I mean, you know, we, we want to know from him, I think, whether he is living the brand he's now urging on the rest of us. Because meanwhile, Allegra Stratton, the, the government spokeswoman on all these things, has said, well, she's sticking with an old diesel because she doesn't think the electric car would do what she wants. Uh, and uh, she's only come up with a few sort of minor things, things I'm already doing. I, I am scraping the plate, not, not rinsing the plate before putting it in the dishwasher. Uh, and I do store the uh, the bread that I can't eat in one go in a freezer. Well done. So I feel I've ticked her boxes yes. on this green thing. Who knew you were such a green warrior, Sir John? I mean, well done. Congratulations. Oh, well, there you are. Secrets. You well, see? we can all do these things. I mean, I, I love also her reasoning for not uh, actually. Why does she? Why does why can? Why does she need a car at all? I mean, surely if you're a green warrior, you take the train um, because it's a perfectly good train that she can go and visit her family on in Scotland. She doesn't need a car. Well, indeed, good question for her. But uh, as you know, my, my theme, Mike, has been let's uh, sell the green revolution by the green revolutionaries coming up with products and services that we all think are great and we want to buy because they're better, cheaper, faster, whatever. And I don't think all of the green products quite meet it yet. Uh, I know a lot of people who haven't got a heat pump on their Christmas list and aren't yet ready to buy the electric car because they want to go on longer journeys. So, so there's work to be done. And I think my big criticism of Keir Starmer is, once again, it's top down. We're going to boss you around. We're going to tax you. We're, we're going to make you do things. We're going to set rules. I want a, a liberalizing revolution where we get greener and cleaner because it makes sense, because it's better, because people want to do it. Yes. Which brings us back to the to the way the government's currently running the economy and running the country, because for me, and I don't know about you, there seems a little bit too much nudging going on, a little bit too much suggesting, a little bit too much kind of uh, making out this is what you should be doing uh, in order to uh, uh, get out of this mess uh, of COVID that we are in. I would rather see them letting um, the, the reins go a little bit of the economy and letting everybody do the business that they want to do. Yeah, I agree, Mike. I mean, you know, a lot of the things that cheer people up and make their lives better have come from free enterprise, from competition, from entrepreneurs, from choice, from things that the government hasn't yet messed up or regulated. And I think we need a, another surge of that innovation mm. coming into our domestic life. I and mean, just look at the magnificent way the private sector enabled us to have some kind of a life when we were all locked, locked up in our homes to tackle COVID. And it, and it was the great digital revolution that saved us so that we could download entertainment, we could contact our friends digitally, we could use social media, uh, we could watch and listen to your great program, uh, and we could order things online and, and we could do much of our work online. Mm. Um, that shows you how a flexible, dynamic, competitive private sector can help you. Uh, and I, I'm urging the government to allow more of that. And instead of the government telling us all how to lead our lives, the government should be asking the private sector, what can it do? How can it make things better for us? Yes, exactly right. Because, as I say, it occurs to me that there are still lots of countries of the world where things are not as good, actually, as they are here. And I think we tend to have um, um, a leaning sometimes towards being a bit more self-critical, perhaps, than we should be. Because we spoke yesterday to a guy in Gran Canaria, who's on holiday in Gran Canaria. He said he can't go anywhere without a mask. You're standing around a swimming pool wearing a mask. You're in a taxi wearing a mask. You're doing all this kind of stuff that, that they insist upon, which in this country now we don't do anymore. 
And I wonder whether we can expand on that and actually perhaps find a better way out than any other country in Europe. Well, I agree. I, mean, I think uh, we all want the win from the vaccines, don't we? I mean, the figures are pretty overwhelming that mm. if you have the double vaccine, your chances of getting the disease at all are much reduced and your chances of getting a serious version of the disease are, are much reduced. So it's now a much more acceptable risk than before people had the, the vaccine option. So we now want the vaccine payoff. We, we want to be freer uh, and more able to make our own judgments. And those who have good reason to be worried or those who are worried about the, the disease, then of course we should support them and help them to be better protected. But the rest of us should be able to go about our normal business and our social life in the way we choose to do. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And talking of that, what's your view of, of how they've now suddenly moved that vaccination drive towards teenagers? Because we were told not that long ago that that wasn't going to be necessary. Today, uh, we're reading that actually uh, we think it's a better idea for it to happen than not to happen. Well, I'd want to see the evidence. And I think my colleagues who, who lead the COVID recovery group will be sort of pouring over whatever data is, is produced. Because if we're going to go in for this expensive vaccination program for younger people, uh, where there will be some parents who are not very happy about it, there needs to be very good evidence. And similarly with the booster jabs. I mean, you know, what is, what is the evidence for those? Are, are they really essential for the top nine categories or not? Uh, so I, I haven't made up my mind yet. I haven't really seen the case, but I think the scientists have got to have a very good case and they've got to tell us why their case has changed from the one they had yes, a few months ago. Because it is rather glib. And, and for a lot of parents, and I count myself as one, I've got two teenage boys. You know, if I'm going to be giving them information, I want to be sure that it's the right information. I want to be sure that, that all of the various things should be taken into account, because clearly there are some people who are affected badly by COVID. We don't really know why. There are other people affected badly by the vaccine, and we don't really know why. It would be helpful, I think, if we had a better understanding of both of those scenarios. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we are owed honest data and <clears throat> honest inference from the data. I don't think there should be a one-size-fits-all now. I'm, the, the data was pretty convincing that if you were in um, the top nine categories, uh, you were quite vulnerable to getting the, the disease and you could have a very nasty version of it. And I think most of us accepted that case, and so you have the two vaccines. But the, the evidence was always um, less convincing the younger down the age range you went. And so if they've now got better evidence, let's see it. But yes. uh, let's have um, some data and, and some intelligent analysis first. Yes, exactly right. And one of the big reasons why we haven't yet got back to normality is the travel situation. Tomorrow we expect another announcement from Grant Shapps uh, and the Department of Transport about where uh, countries might be possible to go to. Uh, the Confederation of British Industry today has called for the government to give more support to the travel industry. I mean, it has been battered and bruised beyond recognition. I'm surprised that um, airlines haven't just completely collapsed. But what's your take now on, on, because what I think about travel is it's not just about outward bound travel, but it's about inward bound tourism. And we need that money. Well, indeed. I mean, I think my, quite a lot of people decided it's too much hassle and too unreliable to book a foreign holiday. So they've taken a, a holiday at home this year in, in uh, the United Kingdom. And I always take my summer holiday in England anyway, so it didn't sort of make any difference to me. So right. I was one of the lucky ones. Um, and then um, the places the foreign visitors would have taken in the hotels and, and on the campsites and whatnot were taken by uh, people locally. So, so there has been some business, I'm pleased to say, yeah. for our domestic industry, but the people who really suffered are the people who are flying the airlines and, and arranging the bookings in foreign hotels. And they've they got real problems. 
uh, the sooner we can relax more, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I do think it's a difficult series of judgments. And of course, it's not a series of judgments entirely within the gift of the UK government and parliament, because it does depend on what the other countries do. And I think people still want to be protected from really severe outbreaks in foreign countries, particularly of new variants. And so the, the government does need to keep an eye on that. Yes. It seems from what I'm reading this morning that Spain is not going to be put on any red list or an amber plus list because the beta variant is not apparently as bad as they thought it was. And I think as we go forward, we should realise that none of these variants are going to be as bad as we perhaps thought they were, not least because of the vaccination programme. Yeah, well, let's hope that continues to be true. And again, we need data and evidence, don't we? And we don't want people to be ultra prudent in interpreting the evidence, nor do we want them to be foolish. I mean, if a genuinely new variant comes out which beats the vaccine, then we've all got to take note and take appropriate action. It'd be best to try and stop that arriving in the country in the first place. Yes. But the variants we now know about, where the vaccine seems to be doing the job, um, we don't have to be so careful. No, quite. The two biggest issues I get uh, pretty much every day, John, and I just want to ask you about them, is one, the NHS. Uh, when is it going to be able to actually be declared to be fit for purpose? Because at the moment, I don't think it is. I think it's been neglected for years and years and years, not by politicians, but by bad management and by people who don't understand how to spend the imen- immense amounts of money they have uh, and, and in a way which, which is efficacious for the, for the public. And second of all, the other big one that I keep getting questioned about, and I was asked specifically to ask you about this, is the, the continual arrival of illegal migrants on our shores who are coming here from France, uh, despite the fact that we've given them loads of money to try and stop it. Well, on the second one, um, the, the Home Secretary and the government assure me that they are as determined as you and I would like them to be to try and stop this. They're finding it very difficult. They are now discovering that um, they can make arrangements to send somebody back and the courts interrupt and there are endless legal processes. So we're currently in the process of changing the law with, with the aim to make sure that people have one fair appeal. And once the appeal is settled, uh, then if, if they've lost, they've got to go. I think that would be very helpful. Uh, they've put in uh, new resource uh, to Border Force and, and are asking them to do the job in the channel. Well, that's proving extremely difficult. It obviously requires more cooperation from the French authorities than we already get. Uh, and so I think they've got to work away on it. I, I think they're in no doubt what we want. You and I are in no doubt about what we yes. want. Uh, but it's proving technically difficult and it does involve other countries. Mm. On the NHS, I mean, We all know that there are a lot of very dedicated, very professional um, people who've taken a lot of risks and who have worked extremely hard to handle a very, very nasty COVID outbreak, which in the early days was was killing too many people and had a very serious variant, which uh, could cause enormous damage. And at the same time, they had to try and keep going some of the other procedures. Uh, I think we do need to have a look at the top management and the way it implements the wishes of the politicians, as you rightly say, Mike, I don't know any politician who doesn't say the NHS is a great asset and we back it. I don't know any politician who begrudges it extra money. We're always voting extra money for the NHS. There are always arguments about whether it's enough, but each party in office has put a lot of extra money in. So I think we do now need to have a look once the pandemic is officially declared to be passed. Uh, what worked, what didn't work, and how we can improve. And one of the questions I got include, uh, why aren't we doing more on infection control in in terms of uh, air handling, uh, air extraction, Mm. air cleansing and whatnot? Aren't there systems we can improve in hospitals? Uh, Couldn't we do more by way of having specialist isolation hospitals that deal with uh, 
very uh, difficult diseases that are easily transmitted because it is quite difficult running a normal hospital alongside uh, a COVID hospital where, where you've got this uh, very dangerous disease that can creep out into other people. I think we need to look at isolation. Uh, and maybe we need to look again at uh, what, what kind of freedoms and independence the clinicians and the nurses and the individual units have uh, and whether they are able to respond in the way they want. Mm. Yes, there's a whole list of, uh, of things that need to be fixed and should be fixed as soon as possible. John, stay with us for a moment. We're talking to Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP from Wokingham. A couple more questions to finish up with just after this on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP from Wokingham, member, of course, of the COVID Recovery Group. I was intrigued, John, by your uh, tweet today about Newsnight. Uh, how the BBC interviewed you and asked you to come on the show, uh, saying that they did not want to fit you into a script um, and then presumably changed the rules, did they? I thought it was bizarre, because they know I've been critical in the past that you're invited on to a BBC programme and then they cross-examine you on how you're going to answer the questions mm. and then if they don't like the way you're going to answer <laughs> the questions, uh, you're suddenly a non-person. Right. So this time they came on. I just got back from holiday, was in a good mood, um, and they said, oh, we're very interested in your views. Are you free to come on Newsnight tonight? Well, it was a bit earlier than I wanted. So, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm up for it if that's what you want to do. What do you want to talk about? <clears throat> and then they named a very narrow subject, which is one I have never written on, never expressed a view on uh, willingly. Um, and I said, well, I'd rather do something else. If you're really interested in my views, I can speak on reeled off a whole load of things. And they said, no, thanks. And I, I don't think they saw the irony. <laughs> no, it is extraordinary how Newsnight has kind of fallen from grace. It used to be such a great show. I mean, I feel in a way slightly nostalgic about what the BBC used to be. You know, Question Time used to be a great programme. Yeah. I never watch it now. Newsnight similarly used to be the place to go for really interesting interviews yeah. when Jeremy Paxman was on. But it's just rubbish now. And I don't say that as a rival broadcaster. No, I, it's just not it, very it good. It lost a lot. No, I mean, as a politician, you used to be quite pleased to get an invite to go on Question Time or, or Newsnight. Uh, and even if it was a tough interview, that was part of the game. Yeah. And they had a big audience and all the rest of it. Uh, but now they, they don't have the same audience on Newsnight. Uh, and, you know, I just think if they are seriously interested in people's views like me, uh, they should at least know one of my views and then say, we want to cross-examine you on this view. And right. They don't even bother to, to look it up in advance. I mean, if I was inviting somebody onto a show and I was in a hurry, I might not know very much about them when I started, but I, I would have a, on my screen their website to see what they've been up to yeah. while I was talking to them. They didn't even do that. They no. didn't seem to know about my well, website. Well, I mean, there is... There is a daily story, Mike. No. I mean, uh, even, it's it, there for all you guys to draw on. But even now... Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy to just look at somebody's Twitter account. If you're a politician, you have a Twitter account. Yeah. It's pretty easy to see what you've been interested in in the past week, what you've been talking about, what you've got views yeah. on. It's not, you know, it's not it's journalism 101, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've just done it. You, you've seen what I've been tweeting about, and you know I've been tweeting about green things, and I've been talking about economic things. Yeah. <clears throat> and the website has the backup. It has the bigger stories on there. It's been talking about public spending. It's been talking about COVID recovery. Uh, today it's talking about getting better governance over the quangos. You know, I try and provide interesting topics. The BBC has a very narrow group of topics and it still seems to have a view of what you ought to be saying about them. Yes. One final question for you, Sir John. Um, are you concerned at all about the current sort of seemingly um, polling that's going around suggesting that Boris Johnson's popularity is not what it was and that he is losing part of the country because of the way that he's progressing this government? 
Yeah, I've seen those polls. Um, I, I trust we're going to see them picking up again. You know, I've been a long-term Boris supporter. I'm a fan. Um, I think a bit more of the freedom-loving, optimistic Boris will, will go down the storm. Uh, and I think that will will take those polls back up again. I think it's probably a sort of temporary thing uh, over the difficulties the government's been facing with all of this um, COVID travel mm. and so forth. Yes. Well, I see he's taking up uh, your um, your advice and uh, st- having a staycation this year as well. He's not going abroad. <clears throat> yeah, good idea. I think um, they can be excellent. I've always enjoyed my English holidays and uh, look forward to more of them. Excellent stuff. So, John Redwood, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Wokey, a member of the COVID recovery group, fan of Boris, supporter of Boris Johnson. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Laura Dodsworth. Laura, welcome back. Good morning. The weeks really do fly in, don't they? They do. We're already in August. I can't believe it. The weather says otherwise, but we are. We're in it August. does. Well, at least yeah. it's not bad today. I mean, it's not horrible, but I'd just quite like to go somewhere and lie by a swimming pool and um, drink pina coladas all day. I know, but last week after I was here, I got so wet in the rain, I could squeeze my socks out when I got <laughs> home. So There have been some biblical uh, bursts of the knot. Yeah, and some people want to blame this rain on the climate. Yes. All right. Well, and I mean, last... it is the climate. You know, climate change, you know what I mean. Human-made climate change. So last week we talked about that uh, ridiculous article by Allegra Stratton about how you shouldn't wash Mm. dishes. So we won't rehash that. You mean Allegra Stratton who drives a diesel Volkswagen? (laughs) That (laughs) Allegra Stratton who doesn't think it's right to get an electric car yet because she can't go and see her family in it. Yeah, the one whose boss takes a private jet to Cornwall, that one. That's the one. So as Net Zero Week continued, there was more absolutely nonsense Mm. advice and... I mean, it, it just got worse. There was an article in The Sun about how by 2030, Brits could be eating insects, <laughs> not meat. Why? Um, well, out of choice, you mean? <laughs> well, we'll think it's choice because that's how the nudging works. Yes. It's supposed to preserve your choice. You think you're choosing it. And they will use techniques to make you think you're making a choice yes. to switch from meat to insects. But they've really, they're really going to have their work cut out mm. for them with this because this, isn't, this is not a very natural or easy choice. No. So the reason behind it is climate. Mm. Apparently, we need to um, cut down our consumption of meat. Yes. The thing is, what these um, global predictions and think tanks don't take into account is that even according to the UK government's um, group on climate change, UK farming just uses half the greenhouse emissions Mm. of the global average. And we're nearly completely um, self-sustaining and and independent in our beef and our lamb and our dairy. But they would like you to switch from supporting British farmers and meat yes. to eating insects okay which i just are they going to mass farm insects or are we just supposed to pick them off the trees oh my goodness eh? i guess it's going to be mass farming imagine the change to the landscape if instead of beautiful pastures with right. sheep grazing we have bug factories i mean it beggars belief doesn't it i mean i have actually eaten insects um, i was telling you a story earlier about uh, i was once invited to the uh, annual dinner of the new york entomological society which was apparently the study of insects right so i went to this very nice townhouse in Manhattan where there were lots of very intelligent and and very kind of, shall we say, academic types. Um, And they had this whole table uh, filled with all different manner of of beasts, creatures, creepy crawlies. They had um, some pate that was made from slow worms, which tasted kind of like eating that, you know, that paste you used to use as glue when you were a child. Tasted a bit like that. But I'll tell you what was quite nice was the crickets. They had some roasted or toasted crickets in a frying pan. Okay. Um, 
And I can see we're already turning a bit puce as I tell you this. Um, but it tasted like trail mix. Mm. And it was all right. But I mean, you wouldn't want to eat it all the time. I'm a slightly tweet worm pate as I'm likely to try the glue that you said it reminded you of. Yeah. You haven't sold it at all. No. So when I was travelling Mexico when I was 21, mm. post-university jaunt, um, the people there, the poor people, the people who can't afford me do eat crickets or grasshoppers. Yes. I'm not sure what they are. Yeah. So I, well, we decided... They're now full of protein, apparently. Hmm. So we decided we'd try one, but I had a real problem with it. And mm. I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, it's his head. The yes. head's the problem. Yes. So I took the head off. Right. And I thought, oh, it's not the head. I've still got a problem. It's the it's legs. It's the legs, yeah. So I, I took all the legs off. And I was like, oh, it's it's those wing things. So I took those off. And then I'm, I'm left with this thorax, yes. you know, the body of it. And I was like, no, I still can't eat no. it. So I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to eat it. Mm. I think it's a really revolting idea. Yeah. And because most of us... Are, also, know, aren't all these people supposed to be kind? I mean, it's not very nice to just kill insects for food, is it? Well, I don't know. They probably would prefer us to be vegan. But I thought they'd like they us to... Because the other people that I love are these people that say, well, why don't you just eat stuff that's grown in a lab? Oh, because that will go well, won't it? Can you imagine buying, you know, Dr... Um, what was his name? The Island of Dr Moreau. You know, that book by um, was it H.G. Wells, who was, who was, the, was the guy who was, was mixing animals up and you know, creating sort of weird oh. and wonderful creatures. Um, and it's all a bit strange. Not, I don't want to eat anything that's grown in a lab. No, I'm not a fan of the idea of lab-grown meat. There's a kind of a natural human revulsion, and I think sometimes it's okay to listen to that. You know, we have we have reasons for that. I mean, there is definitely this drive to get us away from meat. The um, boss of Beyond Meat, mm. Ethan Brown, said this week that he thinks that meat should be taxed. What's it going well, to do with him, well, because by he, the way? Well, of course he thinks meat should be yeah. taxed. It's the competition to his products. Yeah. But why do these people get listened to as if they're somehow, you know, more intelligent than everybody else, as if they've somehow got the brains that we all should have, you know? I'll tell you what I've noticed lately. You know how you notice in various different campaigns there are certain slogans, like, for example, I think we said this last week about the new one on masks, is if, wear one if you can, right? Mm -hmm. I've listened to um, Climate Change Guy on the Julia show this morning, and I've also listened to various pol political pundits and there's a new thing now and people say we know and then they make a statement as if that's a fact mm. you know for example we know that eating meat is bad for the planet and you go hang on a second mm. how do you come to that conclusion would you mind explaining it would you mind proving mm. why eating meat is bad for the planet and then they keep making these statements we know this we know that we know therefore we should do this and it's a very interesting thing because somebody somewhere is telling them how to talk like that yeah, because I've seen the same approach to the science and the beginning of the same kind of behavioural science approach that we saw, we've seen with COVID applied to the climate agenda, I've been looking at it a bit more closely. And this isn't simple. I mean, if you want to eat vegan processed food like Ethan Brown's Beyond Meat Burgers, mm. monoculture is bad for the environment. You know, you destroy habitats and... There's a lot to be said for livestock and agriculture. In the UK, most of our livestock is grass-based. Yeah. And that provides habitats for um, insects that wouldn't otherwise have habitats, yes. like the, the large blue butterfly. Right. So, And some of these green campaigners complain that it's not just about changing the climate. It's also about preserving biodiversity. So why would mm. they want us to eat all of that? Yeah, British farming is good for biodiversity. Mm. And there's high standards of animal welfare. So I tweeted about Beyond Meat and insects. And it attracted quite a militant response. I have what you mean, to like say. flies around? 
Yeah, basically. Something. Yeah, it was it was a very militant vegan response, and I think it it kind of ties in with what you're saying. Is there about, any other kind? No, it ties in with what you're saying about the scientists who are very confident that they're right, mm. because I think it attracts a kind of an ideological zeal, yes. uh, a utopianist thinking that they know best. Yeah, and I've got to say the things they were tweeting to me were not persuasive. No, not persuasive at all. They were saying mm. it's not humane to eat animals. Well, they've forgotten that humans have evolved to eat animals. I yeah. totally respect someone's choice not to eat animals. Yeah, of course. I completely get it. But to say that no human should eat animals because they've decided it's wrong yeah. is militant. It is. There's a kind of a religious fervour to it. And I found myself blocking more people mm. in the last week because I tweeted about Beyond Meat Listen, Burgers I've, I've had than I've ever blocked. Many groups of people, and the vegans are some of the worst. You know, <laughs> yeah. they really are. And they'll send you some horrendous pictures of things like dairy farming. And how, you know, these yeah. poor cows are made to produce so much milk that it's disgusting. And you know, like, why are you sending me this? I didn't ask for it. You're not going to persuade me that you're right by sending me something disgusting or something that looks horrible. I don't really know, you know, how true it is anyway. Mm -hmm. Just don't do it. So I think that the uh, people that want to persuade us to eat insects have really got their work cut out for them mm. if that's what they think is going to happen by 2030. And this is what I predict happening based on what I've seen with COVID so far, based right. on what Laura's learned about behavioural science from researching yeah. state of fear. You're going to see celebrities eating insects. Mm. They'll be paid to, yeah. paid to endorse it. And it's going to be in fancy restaurants. Now, there's something you may or may not know, but lobster wasn't always seen as a luxury food. It was seen as a food for poor people, yes. prisoners and indentured servants. Well, do you know, in America, it's very much, I mean, it's, it's it can be seen as an expensive food but there's lots of very ordinary um, places where you can just get relatively cheap lobster lobster robbed yeah. in new england particularly there's a little shack that i go to in connecticut just off the uh, um the hackensack beach or somewhere like that um hamanasset sorry and it's um and it's a beautiful and you go but get a lobster roll and it's mm. fast food effectively you know it's not expensive yeah. And it was it was the food of slaves mm. and indentured servants once. But in the 1950s, it, it, there was a, a rebranding job done on lobster and it became seen as the food of glamorous people. So yeah. I think you're going to see glamorous people popping little insect delicacies into their mouths in very expensive restaurants. Yes. You're going to see a lot more science telling you that meat is bad for mm. you. Um, that everything we've always known about human evolution and a normal human diet is wrong and insects are better. Yeah. And you're going to be guilted into doing it for the environment. And there's going to be quite a sustained campaign right. based on this. And I wonder if some of the supermarket chains will buy into it as well. Because they, mm. they will want to ensure that they make money if they're going to change what it is that they sell. And at the moment, they're quite happy with what they sell. But they've sold a lot more kind of vegan friendly type things than they used to, don't they? I see it on the shelves. I don't know if they're selling it. I tell you what I noticed when shelves ran a bit bare mm. um, early on in the op uh, epidemic when people were stockpiling, yeah. that there was a lot of vegan stuff left in the chilled cabinets, but no meat. Really? That's what I saw. Mm. Maybe yeah. that's just my local supermarket. I think it depends where you are to a large extent. Yeah. But, you know, lots of substitutes for milk, vegan cheese, which tastes also a bit like that glue I used to use when I was six. <laughs> You know, it doesn't taste like cheese, I'm afraid. Um, and listen, the thing about you and I is that we're not telling people what they should eat, but they're telling us what we should eat. It's like the old joke of how do you know so-and-so is a vegan because they came over to tell you. Well, that's because we don't have a religious fervour about mm. it. I, I, I'm very happy with other people eating grasshoppers and vegan burgers. Mm. I don't care. And do you think on a more sort of global level, I suppose, and I don't mean that geographically, but just in society, that we have become more conditioned to being told how to behave because we seem to be much easier now to manipulate as a society you know if the government had said back in the 1960s this is what you should be doing i don't think anyone would have listened 
Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know. I Because I wasn't around in the 60s, I'll be honest. Right. So I, I was, but I was very small. <laughs> very small. Yeah, but I, so I don't know about that. But, you know, we heard Neil Ferguson say in a quite extraordinary interview in The Times that they didn't know if they could get away mm. with doing a lockdown yes. like China. And then they thought, we can. And then they, they realised that they could have done. I think they will stretch obedience as far as they can sometimes. Mm. And it, and I think you've seen that play out in the way different countries have done lockdowns. They've done it according to a muscle memory. Spain was very strict, but mm. it's not that long ago that Spain had a fascist regime. Yes. Same in Italy. Yes, and I've got friends who live in Portugal and they say the same thing. That in Portugal, people were much more willing to do what they were told because it wasn't that long ago yeah. since if they hadn't done what they were told, they'd get whacked by the police. Exactly. And then look at lib more libertarian states in the US where it hasn't flown. Yeah. So I think so. Um, but is this working out very well for Boris Johnson? Well, that's another good question. And we will need to discuss that because Boris Johnson's popularity, uh, I was asking John Redwood about mm. it this morning, is definitely on the wane, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, from creepy crawlies to uh, plummeting popularity. Yes. Um, I saw that the Conservative Home Cabinet League table shows a huge drop mm. for Boris Johnson. So um, he and Rishi Sunak both didn't self-isolate. Do you remember? They, they were going to try and avoid self-isolation. Yes. That doesn't seem to have touched Rishi Sunak, that no. U-turn. He's number two in the Cabinet League table. Boris Johnson's dropped 36 points to three, 3.4 mm. points. I mean, that is a huge plummet. Yeah. And you can see that reflected in YouGov polls as well. So the um, number of people who disapprove of the government in general has overtaken the number of yeah. people who approve. Mm. So something's happened. And I think that the numbers are quite evenly split, probably because it it reflects an ideological fault line. You've got people who want the restrictions to continue. They feel safer with authoritarian uh, measures. They're frightened about like what will this, happen. Though. I mean, I kind of, you kind of come across them and you can see that there are people like that, but I don't really know anyone that wants to, to live like yeah. that. Do you? I don't, but of course that could reflect our our own echo chambers and our friendship circles, because they, they must be there. They're, they're voting in YouGov polls. Oh, I've got no doubt that there are those people out there, but I just wonder mm. if we're giving them too much credence and we're giving um, them the, or giving the opinion that there's there's more of them than we think, because I think it's a sort of metropolitan yeah. thing. I think once you get outside of London, you go to parts of the country where ordinary people just do ordinary things. They mm. don't try and prove themselves to be something. They're not trying to keep up with anybody. Yeah. They're just getting on with their lives. I don't think there's anybody like that in those parts of the country. I think so. I think it's like the Brexit thing all over again. And I think this is the reason for his falling popularity. Mm. I suspect it's because of the continuing restrictions and the threat of vaccine passports. I think people, have, mm. I don't think people have got any truck with it. I know people who are going ahead with their vaccine and their vaccine passport because they just want to get on with life, but mm. they think it is a terrible idea. I'm sure this is a big part of what's hurting Boris Johnson's popularity. And I've got another little indication for that. The Conservative Party Policy Forum ask all the constituencies, the, the Conservative Constituency Associations, mm. for their top reading read. Right. And I'm sorry, this is going to be a horrible blag for my own book, but that's guess right. what the clear recommended favourite was around the country? Your book? It was, The State of Fear. State of Fear. So that's grassroots Conservative Which I members. Hear, you know, I must, I must say, it's the book I hear the most being mentioned all over the place, though. Yes, so I that's love great. That. Thank you. But that's grassroots Conservative mm. members who are clearly fed up yeah. with a behavioural science approach and they're fed up with fear messaging and they're probably fed up with this technocratic tinkering in our lives yes. and they want to get back to normal. People have so, had enough. And also I hear a lot um, on this show of people either texting me, tweeting me, calling me saying, you know, this is not the Boris Johnson we voted in. This is not mm. the Boris Johnson we thought we had and we don't want it anymore. And we might not ever vote for him again. Yeah. And that's a problem for the Tories. 
I, I think so. So more Conservative Party members are now dissatisfied with him specifically than are satisfied. Yeah. And, you know, that's about split. It's like 48% to 44%. But to give you an indication, after the general election, his popularity was 98%. Mm. This is a big slide. Yeah. It's yeah. a big slide. So and that he's was pre-COVID, of course, wasn't it? That's pre-COVID. He's going to have to change. I mean, popularity for the government of Boris Johnson was absurdly high on the 23rd of March when we locked down. People yeah. really liked that strong governmental approach, yeah. but they don't like it anymore. No. And they're going to have to change Do you gears. know why? Because like everything else in life, uh, if people are dishonest with you and people continue to treat you as if you don't matter, after a while, if you're in a relationship with somebody like that, you're gone. Mm. And sometimes it takes a while to realise that that's what they're doing. But once you've realised, it's all over. And I think that's where we are. I think so. I think trust is in tatters and I think it's a really dangerous stage. You wouldn't have found anybody less cynical than me pre-COVID mm. and now you pr probably wouldn't find anybody more cynical about government messaging and yeah. I think that's depressing and I want to get back to yeah. being in a better relationship yes. with my government because it does feel like a bad relationship. It does. It feels like I've got a really bad boyfriend. Mm. Yeah, I think we all have <laughs> and uh, that's not a good thing at all. Laura Dodsworth is here. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Lord Dodsworth is here, adding to the general um, joy of life, I would say. People love listening to you. They oh. very complimentary on Twitter, so thank you to all those people who are saying uh, what a great listener it is. It is a great listen. It's also great to watch, too. Uh, we've been talking about climate change, about uh, green agendas, about nudge politics. You've got an interesting story from Germany for us, I understand. I do. Now, it's old news, but the fact that it's old news is interesting in itself, because this is big news. Mm. The editor-in-chief of Bild, mm. which is the biggest newspaper in Germany, think The Sun. Yes, Bild Zeitung, I think. Bild Zeitung, name, yeah, that's very great. They've covered lots of my work before. I do, I do quite like Bild, but they've, um, they have made an absolutely extraordinary apology mm. to the children of Germany. Have they? Yeah, on the 27th of May, they um, released a video and an editorial from the editor-in-chief, and he apologised that the country's policy and the media coverage mm. and build media coverage yeah. had made um, the children of Germany feel like, I quote, victims of neglect, isolation and loneliness. Mm. And he went on to say that what the policy had done was to make them feel like they were a mortal danger to people and that they could kill their grandmother. But this was done not based on any scientific evidence, but on propaganda. Yes. Well, they weren't the only ones saying that, were they? We were they saying were. that. Our government was saying that too. It, they were. And there are some similarities between some leaked papers which are called the panic papers mm. between government advisors and scientists asking them to egg up the danger yeah. and to make people scared right. and one of the things they talked about was making children feel like if they went out to play with their children uh, their, their friends yeah. they could come home and kill their families it was an extraordinary mm. admission of yeah. trying to make children frightened and guilted guilty so he's apologized for that and he's so clear on it. He says that when the state steals the rights of a child like that, it's done them mm. a very grave disservice. And he makes this apology. So it's interesting that it wasn't news over here. And I haven't heard of any other media outlet doing that. No. It rings a vague bell with me, only in as much as I think I might have read something about it, you know, a little while ago, but not certainly nothing yeah. big. It was nobody made much of it, I don't think. But I think that's the trouble. You know, when we talk about the government's nudge policy and the kind of reasoning for why they want us to behave in a particular way, you know, it's one thing to influence adults. It's another completely different thing to influence children, isn't it? Children have been like the victims or the scapegoats, mm. I think, of the whole epidemic. They've really suffered enormously. Yeah. And their emotional well-being should have been an absolute priority, and it wasn't. I think, you know, you could apply perhaps a cynical interpretation to his apology, but to me, I thought it was refreshing 
and it was brave yeah. and I respect it and yeah. I would love to see politicians and editors acknowledge yeah. if they did something well, wrong. Well, you know, we hear about Matt Hancock possibly trying to make himself, um, you know, a, a comeback of one kind or another. I don't think anybody, one, should allow that to happen. But two, if he was ever going to be given any kind of public forum again, I think he should be made to apologise for some of the things he said because he said that you don't want to kill your granny. That was one of his phrases. Uh, but do you remember his apology when he left his role? Well, it wasn't an apology, was he it? He basically gave himself a massive pat on the back while apologising. Have you ever seen an mm. apology where somebody says what a great job they've oh, done? Oh, I know. And he was making out that if it hadn't been for him, you know, we'd never be in the situation we were in. And it was like, well, hang on a minute. You know, you were spending a lot more time doing something we didn't know you were doing for a start. Um, you know, this working day and night thing meant something completely different to him. And so, you know, whether he had been the health secretary or not, we would still be where we are. Wouldn't we? It, and it wasn't an apology. The editor-in-chief's apology for Build is an apology. Mm. What I'd like to know is if their coverage has changed yes. since then. And not being a German speaker, I'm not sure. No. But I'm, I'm quite curious. I'm going to go yes. and have a look and see what well, they've been saying about children. Well, we've got some listeners in Germany, so maybe they'll get in touch with us and yeah. tell us. So that would be a good place to start. Well, excellent. Well, we shall see you next week, and perhaps there'll be an update on the Bild Zeitung scenario. I just quite like saying that. I'm not very good at German, <laughs> but I quite like saying things in German. Laura Dosworth, thank you very much indeed. Writer, author, filmmaker. We've never, we should talk sometimes about some of the films and some of the other stuff you've done, but there's never time. There's never time. There's too much news. I mean, the news just keeps, it's the gift that keeps giving every day. It does. People say to me, how do you always find something to talk about? I'm like, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll do that. We'll have that. Uh, State of Fear is the book, of course, how the UK government weaponised fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, go and get one. It's very good indeed. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Another very important voice in the history uh, of talk radio and in the sounds that you want to hear about common sense is Dr. Benny Pizer. He's director of the Global Warming Policy Forum because we've been talking just now about how Laura says, you know, we'll all be eating insects in 25 years because people want us to stop eating meat because it's going to save the planet. Well, really, is it? I'm not so sure. And today we've got Sakir Starmer saying that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is missing in action over the climate crisis. He accuses him of delivering a cabaret of sound bites. This is pretty good coming from Sakir Starmer, the man who, as I always say, can't walk past a fence without sitting on it. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Dr. Benny, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us in the home of common sense, because uh, I feel as though there's an ever-diminishing circle of us who are still left standing on the ever-decreasing iceberg uh, of common sense as all of these maniacs uh, swim around us telling us terrible things are going to come down the pipe if we don't do something which we can't really do. Well, um, Kirstama has a point, and the point he has is that Boris is in a pickle. Boris is in trouble because his... UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, which his green advisors promised him would be a kind of repeat of the London Olympics, mm. some kind of crowning <laughs> yeah. event, uh, looks increasingly like a flop. Yes. And the reason is not so much that um, he has got um, lost in action, it is more that his advisors completely misread the international situation. Mm. So India, China, 85 nations have uh, failed to submit their emissions uh, targets um, that were supposed to be submitted a few days ago. These are UN deadlines, according to the Paris Agreement. There's a clear sense that um, the UK and the US are simply not getting where they want to be and that most of the developing world who are now calling for hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars are simply not going to sign up to anything where they will be faced with some uh, penalty. Mm. So Boris is in trouble. He has been totally misadvised and he now needs plan B to make sure that this COP26 in Glasgow doesn't end as a complete and utter fiasco. Yes. Well, I guess maybe his first mistake was not hiring somebody to organise the opening ceremony for him, because if he'd done that, uh, perhaps it would have been a bit more like the Olympics and everybody would have gone, oh, look, isn't Britain great? Look at this fantastic sort of um, episode of, of chicanery that we're, we're, we're watching. But the bottom line for me is, is that the whole point of these climate conferences seems to me to be flawed in the first place, because all they're really trying to achieve is a mission statement which says this is what we're planning to do. And it's and then they call that a success. But all they've got for the Paris Agreement uh, is a load of countries saying we will guarantee or we will strive to reach this level of carbon emissions by this date. 
It means nothing, yeah. really, does it? Absolutely. Well, the, the, the whole point is we've had these meetings for roughly 30 years. That's why it's called COP26. It's okay. a 26 meeting. And ever since they've met, CO2 emissions continue to go up. And the reason is quite simple. Uh, despite all the claims by uh, ministers and green lobbyists that renewable energy is cheap mm. and uh, competitive and now cheaper than coal and so on, despite all these claims, most of the world is still using fossil fuels simply because these are the cheapest forms of energy. 30 years ago, 80% of the global energy mix was based on fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal. And today, it's still 80%, primarily because the developing world is developing and they're using the cheapest energy they have. So that has always been the dilemma of mm. the whole climate agenda, that the reality of the energy demand and energy need in the developing world has been underestimated yes and that would appear to be an ongoing problem because as much as the government wants us to change things you know the change is going to come very very slowly i was speaking to a caller earlier who happens to be a gas engineer and he was talking about the ludicrous suggestion of how so few people in this country would be able to change the way they put heating into their homes, particularly if they were supposed to be using this underfloor heating system, which requires massive space for, um, uh, he said, a sort of fridge-freezer-style unit, which has mm. to sit somewhere inside the house. And then you must have outside um, um, and, um, room to be able to put things in a quite a big garden. So yeah. 50 to 60% of people who live in this country couldn't do any of that. Absolutely, which is why this promise by Boris to install 600,000 heat pumps every year in the next few years is simply not going to happen. This he has already conceded mm. and has now kicked this whole idea of ripping out or banning gas boilers far into the future when he will re long be retired, mm. perhaps almost forgotten. So clearly all these net zero policies that he is proposing are extremely expensive, are toxic, are politically, uh, in my view, uh, unsustainable. And that is why Kirstama realizes that Boris has dug himself into this deep hole and he has to start thinking about how to get out of this dilemma and not be completely humiliated at the end of the year when it becomes clear that he won't be able to deliver a net zero agreement at Glasgow. No, of course. I mean, the problem, of course, for Starmer, though, is that he doesn't provide any alternative ideas. He doesn't have any ideas, so therefore he can just criticise Boris Johnson for a lack of, of leadership, course. while his leadership skills are even worse. Well, that's the role of an opposition leader to criticise <laughs> the government. That's what he's doing. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Keir Starmer hasn't got really an alternative. He's basically saying... Uh, Boris isn't, you know, quick enough or he's lost in action, he's not doing enough. That misses the point. The point is no matter what a UK government does, whether it's Labour or Conservative, it does not matter in terms of global CO2 emissions because in the next 30, 40 years, the most emissions will be emitted in the developing world in the rising countries in Asia who are competing with us, who are overtaking us, who are producing all the products 
that we consume. We think we are good because we create, we, we emit less CO2. Well, we've done that by simply asking China, India, and the rest of Asia to, you know, to, to manufacture mm. the products we consume. Yes. And then we would say, oh, we are the greens. Yeah, but we are losing all the industry and all the manufacturing. Right. Well, China must be laughing their socks off at the UK and, <laughs> and the rest of the European Union as well. And, and Joe Biden in the United States, who seems to think that people in America are going to give up their cars. He obviously hasn't taken a look around very much, uh, particularly in very, very busy parts of California, as I always quote, yeah. where there's 16 lane highways which are consistently jammed with traffic because people yeah. like their cars. And guess why? There isn't any other form of transport in America that works. Well, and interestingly, you, you mentioned California. Uh, there were uh, recent reports that a third of all buyers of electric cars in recent years, I think in the last five years, a third have switched back to petrol Is that because right? of the inconvenience mm. of electric cars. Right. Because they are inconvenient. Yes. Um, well, of course they are. And I they mean, are again... more expensive. They're more expensive. And it takes, I think Switch has mentioned, it takes six to eight years to pay back the extra cost. And given that electricity prices are going to rise very fast if net zero were to be implemented, then of course electric cars are basically unsustainable and unaffordable for most people mm. because they couldn't pay the electricity that is needed to charge them. Exactly right. And not every electric charge will be free. I understand if you buy a Tesla, uh, you can charge your car for free, but that's because you're spending 75 grand on the car. You know, mm -hmm. but if you're buying a Nissan Leaf, you have to pay for the electricity. And I know of it course. might be cheaper. It might be cheaper than petrol, but also the government will no longer have 40 billion in taxes plus all the road plus all the petrol tax they collect. And don't um, worry, they will. They don't worry, they will get that money back. Oh, I'm sure. But then, in order in order to get that money back, they'll have to charge road tax for electric cars. Of course, every yeah. every every second you're in the car, you'll have to be you'll have to pay for yeah. every second you drive. You will have to pay. And so, I mean. The question, I suppose, that I can't get anybody else to answer, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to give, to give it a try. Why are the governments so obsessed with this issue? Well, that is a very good question. Of course, there is huge kind of... The media has gone bonkers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, the media loves kind of scare stories and, and disasters and so on. But there is huge pressure coming from two sectors of the of the of our society one is the university sector mm. the scientists have come together in a big way uh, and forming kind of activist campaigns on net zero on climate so you you hear all the time uh, scientists saying we're, we're not doing enough we have to do it they obviously have no understanding of international uh, relations of energy costs of energy policy they don't understand that they only see the climate issue and then you have of course the media who are hyping up this to an incredible event almost you know 24 7 mm. and of course governments are put under pressure enormous pressure to show that they have to do something but we are now getting to the point where where the, the low-hanging fruit the easy bits have been done and now it's getting really really difficult mm. very expensive and very unpopular. And as you say, Keir Starmer, if he's getting anything right, is pointing to where's the result coming from. And it doesn't look as if there is a result. Because if the Absolutely. only result if the only result you're going to get in the short term is a commitment from somebody to do something, it's not even mm. worth the paper it's not written on. No, absolutely. And as I said, you know, Britain is claiming that they are so uh, successful in decarbonizing. 
part of the reason is that we've simply shifted a lot of production of things we consume to other countries where they produce, of course, the CO2. So if you take into consideration all the CO2 that has been emitted as a result of the products that were produced for consumers here in the UK, the, the, <clears throat> it would look quite differently. But the, the main point is there is this hysteria, collective hysteria in many institutions, the scientific institutions, the universities and the media who are putting the pressure on governments, not just in UK, all over the Western, it's mainly a Western issue, mm. let's face it. Yeah. It's, this is mainly a thing in, in wealthy countries where people have the luxury to be concerned about these things. Right, it's absolutely right. You couldn't have put it better. Dr. Benny Pizer as ever, uh, talking great sense to us, of course. Uh, he's from uh, the Global Warming Policy Forum, one of the few sensible organisations that studies climate change and actually comes up with proper ideas as to what we do about it. Because quite frankly, there isn't really any point in having this uh, Glasgow summit. I mean, even Allegra Stratton, who's the woman supposedly the spokesperson for the, the summit, um, knows that she's barking up the wrong tree. She knows that she's talking a load of old nonsense. She knows that by driving a diesel car, because it's more economical and it makes more sense, she can't possibly be anything other than a hypocrite, can she? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, a very good time to say a very good afternoon to Donald McLeod of the Clan McLeod uh, up in uh, Bonnie, Scotland, where uh, I presume it's probably a bit nicer weather than it is here. Donald, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, mate. Yes, it is uh, rather nice today, um, weather-wise anyway. Yes. Well, you were anticipating, not particularly with any great uh, feeling of hope, uh, her, her, her announcement yesterday, Nicola Sturgeon finally came out and basically said that they're going to lift all restrictions in Scotland as of August the 9th next Monday, uh, except, of course, for nightclubs, which happens to be the business that you are in. Well, nightclubs and live music venues or any any place, you know, that, that suffered 500 days have been closed now. That's, that's, that's a, what a milestone, one that nobody wants. But the light at the end of the tunnel that we... We had blew it a long time ago, and the Scottish government, you know, with the supposed Freedom Day, uh, which is a term that nobody I think likes, I didn't think would happen. But what, what last minute they decided to change? They were going to keep social distancing, and oh god! And last minute they took that out mm. from what on good authority. They then kept masks in, mask wearing. Now, you know, I've taken a bit of pelters on some in some places in social media about saying it's dangerous you know dancing with a mask a cloth mask is dangerous I firmly believe that but also the point they're also missing you can't see if somebody's distressed you can't see if they're anxious you can't see if they're agitated you can't see if they're about to kick off right. and so the only people that I think that should be wearing masks at the moment are the, are the Scottish government because yeah. you know the highway robbers are stopping us from making a living you know they should be wearing the masks right. and what are they saying about how uh, you're going to get people into the clubs? Are they talking vaccine passports? Are they talking about testing? What are they doing? Well, it gets worse than that, Mike, because today John Swinney, John Swinney, you know, of the Scottish government. Yes, I knew him when he had uh, hair. Um, he didn't have much hair. Yeah, he's got well, none now. Well, I think he's been that worried of COVID that it's fallen out. And uh, he's he's a COVID recovery minister. Jesus. Oh, yeah. guy looks, he, he announced this morning that uh, there's going to be a ban on vertical drinking. 
Sorry. So you, you to lie down and do it. Yeah. So what that effectively means, he, he wants to stop queuing at the bars. So right. that's another way of closing. You're saying you're open, but keeping you closed. Yeah. Now, can you imagine right. the barlands? 2,000 people in the barlands watching a gig. Where are they going to sit? Right. Well, no say, well I, can, I can imagine the garage. I mean, you've got multiple different levels of, of, of the club. You've got different bars in different parts of the club. But I don't know of any part of the club where you can sit down particularly. It is absolutely. It's, well, there is seats. There's, there is there's seats a few, there. But yeah, there is, but there's not enough for everybody. Is it? People, yeah. the whole part of a club experience is, to, you know, is to go in, is to, is to get jostled about, is to enjoy it. You know, that's club. It's whereas the Scottish government think they should be able to go up and place an order sitting down, and then they'll bring it, deliver it to your seat in a nice classy theatre where you're watching, you know, a wee bit of uh, opera or maybe ballet. Yes. They have me a scoob. Now, that would make us totally unviable. It would make old manners of uh, mm. the, the industry and hospitality unviable. And it's, so it's no surprise that this morning the SLTA and the Nighttime Industries Association are having urgent meetings with government advisors who hopefully will get the message through and hopefully uh, Nicola Sturgeon, John Swinney and their team will listen to. Mm. Because, as I say, we've got 30 years, I've, I've got over 30 years experience in this this industry. They have none. Yes. They should be listening to the specialists. Like, you know, it's typical politicians. Yeah. They don't listen to those who know yeah. th their stuff, except it seems Jason Leach the, you know, or, the, or the clinical medical advisor. They listen to them, but they don't listen to, yeah. up here they're not listening to the, the, those who know how to get their no. economy. And also I was yeah. listening to her statement yesterday, because we've obviously been playing it out quite a bit today. And when she talks about the next phase she talks like she wants to stay in this forever you know she's talking about 16 and 17 year olds getting uh, offered the vaccination before the end of august so not just the ones who are in vulnerable situations but everyone right and she's talking as if this is going to go on forever like she wants it to go on forever you know for the next phase of the vaccination you know she's operating like some kind of crazy scientist mad scientist who wants to vaccinate everyone in the world well, I, that's what we do. a lot of us up here are thinking, but, you know, trying to convince a lot of the people that that isn't the case, it's almost impossible, you know, yeah. but, you know, they just see her as a shining star guiding light. She's been very good, and the government very good at the beginning of this, but I think they've lost the plot recently. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to mic micromanage the... The, the virus and the opening up of the economy. And, you know, ultimately, they just want to do it differently from England. Yeah. So they say we have ethical concerns about the uh, vaccine passport or uh, or certification, yet then go and appoint a company in Holland to develop mm. the app. Right. Well, if right. they've only developed the app, why don't they use the one that's already there, the one that you guys have got down yeah. south? You know, I only, I only like, found out this absolute crackers. I only found out this week from your brother, funnily enough, he was in on Monday, um, that the NHS app in England doesn't even work in Scotland. What's that all about? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. No, 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 no. Yeah. Stop that at the wall. I mean, no so how does it know? How does it know you're in? How does it know you're in Scotland? I mean, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I it's just bizarre. But let talk no, to me. Talk to me about the, the the real because you did. I mean, I was part of the the conversation last night on Twitter where some people were actually saying, "Oh, what's wrong with wearing a mask in the nightclub? It's to protect everyone." Well, first of all, no, it's not to protect anyone. And you quite rightly pointed out that it's actually it's quite dangerous for people's breathing as well. Well, what people forget outside of their rants that I, you know, occasionally make on radio or the media is that I do know my stuff, and uh, you know, and 
as, as a, a nightclub operator, you're bound by all manners of legislation or, or, or any operator in the entertainment business. You have a duty of care uh, to your staff and the customers. So you cannot ignore. And one of the main things within a nightclub, dark and nightclub atmosphere, is that one that the medical aid is there, that people are not put under undue stress, yes. that you don't create an environment in which they are, and masks would do that. It also, as I said earlier, creates a very, very big, big problem for security mm. in order to manage something, you know, you would not know if somebody's off their face and chewing their bottom lip and then suddenly they're kicking off, right, you know. Right. It, it, it covers up a multitude of sins, um, whereas we want people to come in and enjoy enjoy the clubs, enjoy the live music, enjoy themselves without being inhibited with a, with a mask. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't like the idea. And so hopefully the government will pull back a bit and not make it mandatory as if, you know, they said that they removed social distancing, but then said, aye, but we'd, we we must say, we, we don't want you going out and uh, hanging about with people and getting together in a crowd. Come on, Why get not? open, get me, please just move forward. I mean, you'll, so, you'll hate me for telling you this, right? And I mentioned it already earlier. I was in a pub last night in a, uh, our local, by the way, which you know well. Um, People were, you know, I, I kind of had to do a double take. I got up to go to the loo. Uh, we were sitting outside. I walked into the bar and there were loads of people standing there. And I was going, oh, this is great. What's this all about? <laughs> None of them were wearing masks and it was fantastic. And it was loud and you had to squeeze past people to get to the loo. It was brilliant. And, you know, if we well, can do it, why can't you guys do it? Exactly. Why can't we all move together on this one? You know, uh, the virus doesn't disseminate between whether you're English, Welsh, Scottish or Irish. It's, you know, but the problem, the point is that as the UK has managed to defeat, break the back of the virus, mm. but at the moment, Scotland seems intent on breaking the back of business. Yeah. And I've got a horrible suspicion, or I've mentioned this before, that these types of basic mitigations which destroy but will be in place till after COPS 26. Yeah. They're doing anything, everything and anything to stop, you know, any chance of the virus uh, growing before the, the climate change conference. And indeed, I've seen papers in the past that said, you know, it'll be next March before things really get opened up again. Yeah, but don't worry, because all the people true. that are flying in from all parts of the world uh, are going to be exempt from any measures that would normally keep the people of exactly. Scotland safe. So it's well, all cobblers anyway. There'll be nowhere open for them to go. Yeah. There'll be nowhere open for them to go. But, you know, but let's see how these talks go. But I noticed that you, you, you mentioned the Oasis thing. That's been quite fun revisiting that place, uh, Ballard Country Park. Yes. Uh, the Battle of Ballock, I called it at one point. Well, I can't believe it. Uh, I mean, I wasn't there because 25 years ago, I don't think I was in uh, Glasgow at the time, but, but I was certainly at Hamden when we went and watched the Oasis. And I was right. telling somebody in the office today that I just, I've never seen so many bottles being thrown in my life, from, from not just yeah. from the audience, but from the stage. <laughs> Well, the, the, the one at uh, Balak, I remember the, the police commander coming up and going, you need to go out there, you need to sort this out. My officers are getting attacked. They're throwing bottles at the helicopter. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> then they try to steal a three-ton generator. Right. The, 
I, I did get, a get you had, What was it? You had 40,000 people who'd bought tickets and another 30,000 that didn't. <laughs> no, that's what the estimate was because the trackway fencing, the secure trackway fencing, the security just wandered off. Right. And went, pulled off. But we also had the, <laughs> an incident with the, the horseback, horse, police and horses running down the hill to get, to get all the wee bams at the bottom. Right. They disappeared from view. Then if, the next thing was the horses going back up the hill <laughs> with everybody chasing them. <laughs> but it, it was an Oh, it was fantastic. What a difference from there these days to this, you know. know. And so for many it people, seems like a different know, time, doesn't it? Because you were also saying um, yesterday before the announcements were made that you have still got um, plans for, for a lot of live uh, events going on, bookings that have, have been made for many, many months since uh, since ago. You know, they've already been cancelled a couple of times. I mean, where does this leave you? Because are you still sort of not able to, to tell people that they can go to a gig? Well, you know, it, 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 that's that's a, a huge problem because we don't know what mitigations have to be put in place. Mm. And indeed, you know, if you go with a vertical drinking one, <laughs> not the horizontal yeah. drinking, which would usually, what a ridiculous usually thing. Usually ends up uh, horizontal, doesn't it? You know, uh, a lot of venues, if that was put in as mandatory requirement, a lot of venues won't open. You, you, so you can't, you wouldn't be able to put the band in place anyway. Right. You know, it's, it's this... Uh, it's this uncertainty, it's this lack of clarity. It's this they're not reading the sort of papers, they're not t- taking in the advice that they're giving, and then they say, Oh, we'll, we'll consult with the industry. Mm. No, that, that, that's not good enough, you know. That's not the way to build the economy back up. So, yeah, at, at the moment, a lot of gigs are still at threat indoors mm. however today transmit got uh, announced that's going ahead in september and uh, so fifty thousand people in glasgow green should be okay and will that be will that be a test event or will it just be people allowed to go no matter what i think every event's a test event i don't think it's going to, going to be an official uh test event but it certainly be heavily scrutinized if indeed it goes ahead i mean it's been announced that jeff ellis is going gung-ho to get it going and good luck to him and i hope it does go ahead great for glasgow but it's the indoor uh, stuff you know glasgow says un city of music you know we're not hearing much of it at the moment well it's it's not as banned isn't it i didn't think you were allowed to sing even well, we weren't we weren't allowed to sing. Whether that changes, so it's all this. We're waiting on the guidance. So they they make as usual. They make these announcements, and then you wait two or three days later on the guidance, and then you've got to scrabble about. But from the club point of view, I need to wait and see what is in the guidance to see how I can open, if I can open. Mm. And uh, the intention always was to open at the end of the month, if indeed we got some sort of green light, but. As I say, these uh, these are very uh, two serious issues that need mm. addressed. And right? you've got well, and you've got staff that have been on furlough for many months, right? So presumably there'll be a bit of retraining needed, a bit of uh, you know preparation. You can't just go right; well, it's open tomorrow, can you? Well, but the laugh is that they're going to you know you're going to go around them all and say you come back to work and say uh, no, no, I'm a hell, no <laughs> chance. So no, I've, I've had my furlough money. I'm oh, no. back <laughs> But as I say, at the moment, every day is Halloween, isn't it? Oh. If you've got to wear a mask, so it's like... Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> It's nuts, Mike, it's nuts. But we are, look, let's not be totally different, has moved forward a bit. It's getting closer, but, uh, isn't it? You know, you just can't touch it at the moment. You just mm. can't, can't touch it, Daniel. I remember can't that. do that. <laughs> 
I know. Well, listen, um, best of luck with it as ever. And uh, we shall be in constant touch, I'm sure. And uh, good luck and have a lovely afternoon. Donald McLeod, Colness promoter, owner of the garage in Glasgow, uh, put on our aces 25 years ago and a couple of times since as well. Fascinating state of affairs up there. How on earth can you convince somebody to go to a nightclub while they have to wear a mask and you have to not stand up and drink? Huh? Horizontal drinking. That's a new one. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.